I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, Selene. Hey, it's Duanna. And welcome to Show Your Work, a very, very special episode. This is one that I think we were both so excited about. Uh, to have a guest like this means to get to go to places we never thought we'd get to. So I'm thrilled. And in the spaces that we've been occupying, there is Hollywood in here. There is fashion. There is a lot of work. There's, there's Netflix. There's upbringing. There's Canadianness and how that impacts the person you are at work. Uh, we think you guys are going to love this. So check it out. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Show Your Work. I'm Lainey. It's Duanna. We have a very special guest. We're so excited. And have been sitting on this secret for a while. Yes. And it happens to be a couple of days while we're recording before Chinese New Year. So this, for me personally, is extra, extra special. Maybe you want to introduce yourself. Oh, this is so much pressure. I can't <laughs> believe this. I feel like I should become wrapped in a red envelope. <laughs> You guys, I'm Josie. I'm sitting here with two amazing ladies, and I'm so excited to be doing this. We're so excited to have you, especially because it worked out now, just a few weeks after the launch of your new Netflix show, Seven Days Out, which we're both obsessed with. And it's a show about work. But we do have one question for you before we begin. Go for it. So in keeping with that, and we talked a little bit about this before we started, Right now, as we're sitting here, what's the most pressing work problem on your mind? Oh, my gosh. The most pressing work problem? Um, it's the same one I have all the time. It's like balancing all my different things because I'm not good at doing one thing. I never have been. So I am terrible at one thing, but I'm amazing at a thousand. And the problem with doing a thousand things is how do you actually balance your attention to make sure everything is getting what you need done? So that is my inherent adult problems. So if anybody out there please has a solution, definitely tweet me because that'd be one of the thousand things I'll be doing is looking at my social media. But <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think that's the hardest part. And I, you know, and it's not like a work-life balance. It's a work-work balance. Yeah. You know, work side hustle work balance. It's like, <laughs> I'm always trying to be like, oh, I don't want that to suffer. But then if you take your eye off of that, then something else suffers. So I'm always trying to give all of my work children as much love. So do you mean, are you one of those people who does better when you have 10 things on the go and 20 minutes to fit something in than when you have like, oh, I got to clear my week to focus on just this one thing? You're happier when there's more going on? I will never be the person that does something ahead of time. I have way into my 40s learned to embrace my procrastination. Ah, I was a, I was the kid who would be an assigned, you know, an assignment in September when we started the school year and then be like, it's due in June. So you have all year to work on it, and it would be this incredibly belabored project. Well, I would do it two days before and stay up all day, all night, all day, all night, and get it done. And I would kill myself, and I would – the next day, I'd be like, I'm never doing that again. I'm going to be really prepared. I've never been prepared. I can only do things, I think, with a deadline looming over me. And I will tell you, I wrote my wedding vows two hours before the ceremony. Yes. No. And – 
it floored people. Did you and decide? Like, you were just like, oh, I have no time for this now, like, two days ago. And I have no time for this now, a day ago. Um, No, actually. <laughs> I mean, in my heart of hearts, I was like, oh, this is a very important part of my life. Like, yeah. I'm writing these once in my life. Yeah. And they have to mean something incredibly genuine and the most special, articulated moments of our relationship. We've been together eight years and I was like, I've, this is the one time in my life where I can't just like wait till the last second. I want to do this for real. And I spoke to a lot of my friends. They were like, you really got to do that a month in advance and sit <laughs> on it. And I was like, you're right. We got married to Southside in New York. We had a little thing the night before for a bunch of people that were in town. And I remember sitting there with, it was like a Mexican restaurant thing. And we're sitting with my friends. And I said, oh my God, I got to write my wedding vows. They're like, what? <laughs> what? Oh my God. It's, you're writing them the night before? Four? Are you crazy? I was like, night before I'm going home and going to bed, I'm going to wake up and go to Soul Cycle, and then I'm going to write it. They're I, like, you're insane. I can't tell you how much I relate to this, uh, down to the wedding speech the morning of. I think you would have killed me had you known. She was bossing me through my wedding day. But um, it's like you need the pressure to get into that mindset, right? Oh, I can't do something because I feel like everything flows. It's... it's primarily a writing deadline there's a lot of deadlines but like things just flow out of me when I'm really under the pressure of time I think that adrenaline just mm -hmm. pushes all your creativity out and I know that sounds so cliche but like when I have a lot of time I'm not really like focused on that yeah. I feel like that I can put you know I can compartmentalize all of my ideas and creativity and I was like I can't really open that drawer yet because I gotta open these drawers first right Chanda Rhymes talks about the long hallway of to get to creativity, you have to run down the long hallway of all the distractions in the world, like the internet and friends and people and whatever. And you can only kind of get all the way down there when there's the monkey on your back of, oh, this is about to be a disaster if I don't get it done. Does that kind of make sense to you? Oh my gosh, absolutely. And distractions are the worst thing for me. Like, like we'll talk about Canon Reads, but I can only read these books on a plane because otherwise there is too many distractions around me constantly. And I don't just mean the internet, but like my dogs, like reaching for my phone. Oh my God, there's a fridge. I might get something to eat. I need water. <laughs> Did somebody say something? Like there's just too much going on constantly. And I don't think it's just for me. I mean, we live in a world of sensory overload with so many different things that I feel like sometimes, I yeah. I, I mean, Shonda Rhimes is so correct. It's like, how do you walk down that hall without all of these doors flying open and, and staying focused to get to the end of the corridor? Because at some point, you're going to be like, oh, God, I ventured into this room. What was I going down the hall for? <laughs> <laughs> okay, but let me ask you this, because there's been a lot of research. And on our talk show, The Social, which you have guested on several times, mm -hmm. we have consistently these experts, these authors coming on and they've written a book or they've do they've done like some sort of academic research paper on the fact that multitasking doesn't work. And it used to be, let's say 10 years ago, that people talked about multitasking as this genius way of like how successful people are successful. And now it's swinging away from, no, we should only focus on one thing at a time and multitasking is bad. My rebuttal to that is I couldn't get all the jobs that I do done without multitasking. What is your perspective on that? But I think life is multitasking. Listen, I love all of this research and all of the debate that goes on. Now they're saying, oh, all of the CEOs in life only sleep four hours. And all of a sudden now it's a whole thing of like, if you don't sleep 10 hours, you're not <laughs> successful. I'm like, I couldn't sleep 10 hours if I took two sleeping pills. Yeah. You know, it's just not me. But I realize that like, you just have to do you. So if multitasking doesn't work for you, then don't do it. But it's the, I realize it's my only method 
to success. And you're right, because like, I can only have done everything I've done because of multitasking, but we all multitask. Like when you write an email, someone's talking to you. When you're like, there's so much going on that in and of itself is some element of multitasking. I will always remember this. And I always use this as a story. When I finished high school and I went to U of T, University of Toronto here for like half a semester. But like at the very beginning, <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm going to take school seriously because I'm studying psychology, sociology. And I remember we were having a huge exam and I went to the library and I sat in one of those, I think they call them study carols, like a like yeah. a table. And I was like, I'm going to read the textbook. And I was like, <laughs> and I flipped a page and I read it. And then I was like, I, I don't know. And I reread the page. I went back and reread the page. I was literally in the quiet library, focused on this textbook. I will never forget this for the exam for over an hour and a half. I was like, I'm not understanding any of this. It's not absorbing into me. I went home. I went home turned on the television and watched TV and then read the textbook in front of the TV, read it like that. Everything's absorbed. Everything went in. And I was like, I think I just need the stimuli of other things. You were pre this generation of kids that have to watch TV, play video games, read their books, be on the phone at the same time. Is that what it is? Well, you you know how we talk about now how like um, everybody has three devices going yeah. all at once. And that's how we watch award shows. That's why we, how we watch sporting events. That's how we binge TV. And you were, like, basically the prototype. Oh, and I feel like that is what I was doing. Like, even now, I'll be like, the Oscars are on. Oh, but I have to tweet something. Oh, my God, there's breaking news. Let me read about that on my phone. So, like, that's all happening simultaneously. Yeah. But I don't feel like I'm missing out on a single thing. Right. Like, the tweet's happening. I know exactly who's winning. And I know <laughs> what news is breaking. But I don't feel encumbered by that. Right. Like, I feel like it's just second nature. I've also heard it described as like doing that kind of thing with several devices or TV on the background or whatnot is kind of keeping your brain busy so it doesn't go wandering off to like do troublesome things. Like that is that if, true? Yeah. Um, for some people or some brain chemistry, the idea being, yeah, that if you have something to do and the TV on and like you have your phone or whatnot, then those are your things so that you don't then go, oh, I should really like that. Uh, buy some groceries or like online shop or whatnot, that it keeps your brain a little bit busy. Yeah. I mean, and, and people, you know, and like people get mad all the time. They're like, Oh, just put that down. Be in the present. I'm like, that is a present. <laughs> that is a present. <laughs> well, okay. So now that we've established and defended multitasking, I think let's get into this work show. Okay. That is currently people are watching on Netflix. We're obsessed with in particular, I think, I want to start with what I consider to be the crown jewel episode of the series. Okay. Which is the Cassini episode. I love that you guys said that. I know a lot of people have focused on Chanel. And of course, that's glamorous. We love the fashion, Karl Lagerfeld, the premieres. Um, but for me personally, on like a, a almost a very emotional level, watching the Cassini episode was such a surprise and it was a gift it was a gift to women. My first question when watching it, when you went in, you got the permission to do this with NASA. Did you know that those three women would emerge as the stars of the episode? Well, I mean, let me just backtrack a little bit first okay. because I am as impressed by Cassini and NASA as well. And that was ironically the very first um, place that we booked that we got, and we said, oh, we want to do something in NASA. We researched it. We want to do Cassini. And there was a lot of red tape to get the access and everything that was going on. But was that, that was actually the first place 
that we signed on the dotted line with. And having NASA was what allowed the other doors to open. It was, uh-huh. I mean, I love that it's a crown jewel for you guys See, because it really us. This was, is pornographic for us. Yeah, yeah. But, like, it, but it makes so much sense. Like, of course, if NASA deems this as something that's exciting and worthy to explore, then of course, yeah. Westminster you can, would say yes. Absolutely. Oh, the Kentucky and, Derby, absolutely. Chanel. Yeah. NASA was the reason Chanel said yes, albeit it took me almost eight months to even close that deal. And it's 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 incredibly rewarding. And like honestly, and I love the idea of NASA, the umbrella of all that. And when we first did it, it was ve- when we first talked about it, it was a very broad thing before we dug into the pre-production and did the research. But you know, and I was like, oh, you know, it's really great. But like, how do we make this? I remember having a call with all of my other executive producers who are brilliant on the phone, and we're like, how do we make this so not in the weeds? so that I'm not clicking out of the show two minutes in because I just don't know what you're talking about. And we don't need a PBS science lesson, but we do actually need to be authentic in how we tell the story, but it has to be human. And that was the one thing we said about the show from the very beginning. I was like, if we tell it really through the eyes and the filter of true human stories, because if you love something and you're passionate about it, you can feel that through the screen. Right. I said, then it won't matter what the subject matter is. Because if I don't like science or space, or if I don't like dogs, I'll still like this episode because I get that idea for passion. But going into it, we did a lot of research. I mean, Andrew Rossi, who is the director of this episode and one of my partners and executive producer, he's a brilliant documentary filmmaker. He made First Monday in May. Mm, He did a documentary on New York Times called Page One that was amazing. And he really did a lot of research and he went to go speak to all of the different scientists that were part of this Cassini mission. And he came back and he said, these were the people that we w- we should focus on. There was like a, a short list. And I remember we were on the phone talking about this in pre-production. I said, you guys, there is a very clear delineation here that like there are female scientists that are in charge of this. That have like Julie, who's a head scientist, but there was another one, I think <laughs> yes, Lynn, our, that have been yeah. there since they launched the mission 20 years ago. Yes. And they have been there till it closes. And then Morgan, who was sort of the more millennial scientist, yeah. mm-hmm. came in later on. I was like, guys, that is our, like, real-life hidden figures. Like, yes! it isn't just a movie script. <laughs> yes! It is real life. This is – we are in an era where we want to empower women. And this is a real true story. Women can be scientists, and they are leading one of the biggest missions in America. So I was like, we have to come approach, you know, approach it from that perspective. We have to highlight this and show people because everyone thinks a scientist is a little old man with a lab coat. And it's not. Look at her. She's like a surfer who is in her <laughs> early 30s wanting to do this. Who knew? Yeah. Well, I mean, and I think you just hit it where at the time, the artists who were producing entertainment or documentaries in the 60s when the Katherine Johnsons were around, they didn't want to focus on those other hidden figures, like the precursors to yeah. Julie and the ones that you profile. So now that you have this opportunity, you're actually, you're making the decision creatively to go for it, where that decision maybe 40 years ago would have been like, oh, but where are the dudes? Oh, absolutely. But I think right? we, and we really made a decision to really go for it. But like, I was like, it's important to go for it. Like yeah. we would be doing a disservice and actually telling an inauthentic story if we didn't go for it. And I think it was, and it wasn't like a thing where I had to argue. Everyone agreed. Everybody knew that that's where we were at. You know, we did it. And I was like, we really have to put that. And I said, we had to hammer that point home right up at the top of the show. Like, I don't want people to suddenly just discover there's women there. It's like, let's celebrate that it's all women that's running this mission that have been there for 20 years. They're seeing their baby come to a conclusion. Like, this is insane. 
Who knew? I'm not a science geek. Who knew I would be crying over like the combustion of a spacecraft? I was literally, <laughs> I watched that episode. Okay, so every, every time we get the rough first rough cut, I play it on a big screen TV at home with my husband and he doesn't know. And he just, and he's a huge Netflix watcher, but he wasn't in the weeds with us producing. Mm-hmm. And he watches it and I want his opinion, but we watch the whole thing. And then, and then he sort of gives me his top line opinion right afterwards. And then I can do my more precise uh, time coded notes afterwards. He was also sobbing after this. And like, we are not sci-fi geeks. Yeah. And I realized that we were so emotionally connected to this episode because it was so human for a subject that is inhuman. Well, it also kind of made rock stars out of them. We were screaming in the car over here uh, about Julie and just what a badass she is and how amazing. But it's also one of those things where while social media has exploded and I know what every person I follow is eating for like mid-morning snack – Um, those people have been working in relative anonymity and like for 20 years, right? And that suddenly you're creating a situation where they are like, they're, they're celebrities. We didn't know they're rock stars working in that environment. And you sort of go, yeah, here they are fully formed. They're awesome. I love that you said that because when we were actually coming into the show and sort of trying to deal with like the, uh, the beats and the formats within it. I think a lot of us were using the terms, and I think as mostly the executives at Sony Studios that we partnered with as well, were saying, let's focus on these particular fields, whether it's fashion or food or science or gaming, and find the rock stars that are in those fields. Like, who is the Mick Jagger of the field? Mm-hmm. And let's really, like, elevate them. And so while no one knows who Julia is, she is a rock star in her field. And, and we did it, and we put it out there, and now people can actually see it beyond that scope. Like, it's so funny, like, the... Twitter chatter on this has been over the top. Like, I, we, we're getting thousands of tweets a day um, over the holidays. And there were so many people that said, please make a movie about this. I want to see this become a real scripted feature film. I want to see these women celebrated. And I was like, I love that they really connected with that over 44 minutes of what we made. What's also interesting to me now that we know that that was your grounding episode that opened up the opportunities mm-hmm. to go into it was the first Chanel, one we filmed too. Um, is now I can see the connection in like the thread between that episode and everything else because with all your stories, you are highlighting almost something subversive in this kind of storytelling. In Westminster, you're talking to a man who has mental health issues mm-hmm. and who feels helped by being with his dog and showing the mm-hmm. dog in in the dog show. Um, in in Chanel, you're focusing on the hidden figures who are putting together the outfits, like those women. And who have ownership. Like they really feel like they're that's right. like children. They're putting yeah. through school. You're doing something political something a little bit maybe unintentional, but a little political here. Um, like in if I my takeaway, if I was writing an essay or a dissertation of it, I would say these are the storylines of the marginalized or at least the non um, the non attention getters that this show is highlighting. Looking back, even though it may not have been intentional, is this something that, yeah, you realize that may have been subconscious? Um, I think it was subconscious and also very intentional at the same time. I mean, I think even with like, let's just use Chanel as an example, because like you can't talk about Chanel without talking about Karl Lagerfeld. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. he is the creative director of the entire company. He is what Chanel is. 
But he was I, almost irrelevant to me in the episode and, in a great way. Oh, he's great. And this is what I said from the very beginning. So whether we did Karl Lagerfeld or Tom Ford or whoever it is that we did, those people are such public figures that the veneer of who they are is so incredibly edited and so thought out and so the image is so put forth. That's not how we're going to tell a story. But what about their assistant? What about the person that has to make it happen? And when we got to Carl and 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 the couture world, we're like, these seamstresses, these women who have worked their whole lives owning that part of what the dress is about or what the clothing is about have put so much into it. And they are totally fine by being in the background of it all. But in a way, we're like, let's push them forward. And Carl will just pepper through because in a way – those women are the ones that we can relate to. We're none of us are Carl. We don't understand that world. And yeah. I think he's funny as sort of a punctuation mark. But if you only saw Carl for 45 minutes, I think you would lose a lot of the emotional aspect of what that episode could be. And then it would have stayed the superficial aspect of what people think fashion is. Right. And you also get to point out that, yeah, it's not an entire world of stars, that in every industry there are sort of upstairs, downstairs of people who are are uh, the the young upstarts or the, as you say, sort of behind the scenes forever, that kind of thing. And and have and worked so hard to put the stuff into it. I mean, I, I think, yeah, if we ever did seven days up to leading up to like, say, I don't know, Madonna going on concert, it's like, Madonna would be funny, but you already know how she's going to be. I want to see those unsung heroes. In getting that up and going. Oh, can you do that, please? Like, <laughs> is that amazing? <laughs> like, no, the crew, the Abs- choreographer, no, yes, the choreographer, the that- logistical people about- trying to get like really. Yeah, does it have to be that big. Can we? Yeah. How about yeah. the backup dancer who's sixteen who just got the first big break of their life? Is this going to change their life? I want to be there, feel it, hear it, see it with them, in a way. Then Madonna. Madonna's toured her whole life, like, and I think Madonna would add a lot of, and we're, I don't, we're not even doing this, but I think Madonna would add a lot of color to it, but are, but it's really the passion of those other people that are going to drive the episode. It's like truth or dare, but Madonna steps back into the yes. shadows, and then literally, like, the dancers and the assistants take the, the forefront. So you flip those ideas. We, and, yeah, and, yeah, absolutely. Because as you point out, you know how she's going to be, give or take, right? Like she can reliably produce sound bites. She's awesome. Madonna, hi. I know you listen. Um, but uh, Do the show. <laughs> but yeah, the people who are like, you don't know how they're going to be. It's That's what creates the drama, and right? We can, and, the, and we can all, as a viewer, watch that and say like, oh, actually, that could be me. I don't know if a lot of people sitting at home would say, oh, Madonna, I could be you. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of people could say, I could be that dancer looking for my big break. I could be that costume designer who just wants to make a difference. I can be that roadie who's really going to make this the best damn concert ever. Like, I don't know. I'm just saying that we can identify with those particular characters than, say, the person sitting at the top Mm -hmm. of the pyramid. And so all of those, the one thing we know that they have in common is obviously that you showed their passion for work, which is why we love it so much, our passion for work. Do you have... Was there a, like, a magic bullet for casting? What was the thing when you were looking at tapes or pre-interviews or whatnot that you would say, that person, this is somebody we need to build around? Oh, that's so good. Um, No, I mean, because I think a lot of these worlds we were starting to sort of also discover and learn along the way. Like, I knew nothing about e-gaming. I knew nothing about, you know, even Kentucky Derby. Like, I think it was... Like, Chanel, yes. I would be like, oh, we, we should definitely talk to that person. Like, Amanda Harlick. And we should definitely talk to that person and this person. And I think 
And then you start with that. But even those seamstresses um, in Chanel, like I discovered them along the way. Like, and I actually learned a lot. So for me, having been in this industry for 30 years, I still was like, wait, that's how it's done? Wait, lace is made at this one factory and then shipped over and then beads are made in another and then it's all pieced together like a paper doll back at Chanel. It's like- And you're depending on other people. Your work is is dependent on like that beading factory sending over the fucking shit so that you can get into the atelier. And and get it done. Yeah. And and like, so that was all new to me. But like, um, I think for us, it was like, we needed the characters to be compelling. Like it was- because it was true documentary and verite, like it wasn't so much like, is she going to be good TV? Is she going to be good TV? But much more like, is she pivotal in the storytelling? And mm. certainly somebody who's more engaging and, mm-hmm. and, and, and doesn't come off flat will always be better storytelling. Yeah. Um, but a lot of it, and we were saying this about Westminster last night, I was explaining to a friend, you don't know because it is documentary. You don't know. I can't, can't, we can't force a situation to happen. So, like, even within Westminster, we followed a lot more people. We followed a lot more dogs and dog owners. And when we were watching some of the first rough cuts, there was a lot more people. And I remember in one of our big sort of conference calls, we were saying, you know what? I kind of just scratching the surface with everyone. So when you do that, I actually don't care about anybody. So I think we have to actually drop some people and go deeper on the others and find the ones that are compelling because we also have to film a bunch because we also don't know well who's going to win. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like you have to like we had to sort of find the winner and sort of tra- track them to the very end. So we have we kind of have to spread it out a little bit and say like okay, we're going to really focus on this or that. But I think having that freedom allowed us to be able to tell a better story. Well, let's go there then with that freedom because I, I think that for us, like we're nerds about this and like the inside baseball of how a show is made. So do you pitch to Netflix first? You come up with the idea and you pitch to Netflix. Are you the one pitching? And then do you have to go pitch to NASA and Chanel? Like talk to us about, yeah, the the pre-work before the work happens. Okay, I will I will give you the whole timeline. First of all, this is a project that has been two and a half years in the making. Okay. So, And I know a lot of people think like, oh, I have an idea for a show and it just happens. No. Yeah. And that doesn't happen on any level. So about two and a half years ago, um, I had a meeting at Sony Studios. It was the day after the Oscars, and I had been up all night. So, like, I had to do Good Morning America, which was airing live. So I had to be on at the Dolby Theater at 3 a.m. Yeah. And then I had to be back on the carpet at noon. And then we did all of that sort of pre-show for the Oscars, and then I went to the Oscars, and then I had to be back on that carpet at 3 a.m. So I just stayed up. And then after that, I was done. I had to go record a podcast for Yahoo, whatever. I don't remember what I was doing, but at the end, so I just kept staying up and up. And I had a meeting at Sony at five o'clock in the afternoon of the Monday on so, Oscar Monday. Oscar when Monday. Everyone so is like, like exhausted. Well, I was going to say we should point out that that's fairly rare to have the Oscar Monday meeting. That a lot of people are sort of like, yeah, we're going to have a bit of a holiday and pick up again on Tuesday. Oh, and I agree with you. And it was also at the end of the business day yeah, at five right. o'clock. So I was like, I'm going to stay up till five o'clock. So then I went there, and I remember we were just talking generally and I had just interviewed Brie Larson's stylist and this is the year she was nominated for Room right and I remember I was so fascinated by her story because Christina Ehrlich was explaining to me she said you know I Brie is making King Kong in like the rainforest outside you know New Zealand somewhere it's very hard to get in touch with her and we try to do Skype sessions in the middle of the night but she doesn't really have Wi-Fi all the time and she goes I was trying to show her a dress and I think it was finally Gucci but she didn't reveal but she was like I was trying to show her a dress over Skype and Bree said I, I I can't see and I can't tell and we don't have time can you just bring that to me 
And so then Christina's like, okay. So then the next day she like got on planes, trains, and automobiles from LA to the rainforest of New Zealand <laughs> carrying a single dress. And Christina said to me, she goes, halfway through that trip, and she goes, I remember maybe plane number two or maybe a car service to plane or to a train. She's like, wait, I only have one dress with me. I hope this is going to be okay. And she started freaking out. And I was like, that? And I was like, I totally know how you feel. And I was, I was, I was relaying this story to ladies at Sony. I was trying to be like, so to me, we are already in a world where we have so much access to everything. Like everything. So like if you want to watch a fashion show, it's not a mystery anymore. It live streams. It's on Instagram. It's anywhere you want it to be. If you want this, if you want that. We are literally like pummeled with content constantly. But the thing that people don't know is stuff like this. The story behind the story. And yes. how hard you work to make that thing happen. Who cares about the Oscars anymore? But I do care how it all comes up. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I feel like, I think that's why sort of everyone loved the red carpet when it first launched. Because it was sort of the, it was sort of the pre-show before the show. And now even that's become its own thing. So that sort of lost its luster and its mystery. But, and they got it. And they were like, and I said, you know what? And I think for me, those that week before the seven days out would be really ride or die for people. Cause that's when really everything happens. And that at that moment, and we've all been in it where like, you think it's going to fall apart and it's just not going to happen, but it always comes together. I, yes, we <laughs> were talking uh, a couple of episodes ago about uh Firefest. I don't know if you got to see Oh my gosh. I love that. <laughs> and like people were literally tweeting me being like, I just watched Fire Festival and now I'm going to watch Seven Days Out as a palate cleanser <laughs> to see how it should really be done. <laughs> exactly. But what's amazing, what's so key is there's a line somewhere in it because you're watching it and you're going, it's like a horror movie, right? You're like, why did they still go? Why are they still pursuing? And there's a line of video, I think, from Mark, from that young, mm -hmm. hot, articulate guy who says... The guy in the ponytail. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah, the white t-shirt, who says, uh, you know, it all looked like a disaster, but so many things look like a disaster the week before, and then they turn amazing. Uh, and so I love that you said that. That's why we got so excited, because that is so often the key in anything. Like, yeah, seven days out, 36 hours before, it looks dire, and then it all kind of comes together. Um, so I guess it's exciting to hear that you think that that's the case, what, 60% of the time, 80% oh, of the time? I, I think all the time. Like, I think it is <laughs> universal because there is always some moment during that week before you're like, you could be planning the Oscars. But like, even if you watch 11 Madison Park, the one about the restaurant opening, there were times when they were like, I don't think we're going to be able to open. And we were dealing with it off camera being like, you know, oh, they want to open on October 5th. They have reservations. They just don't know if they can do it. And I was like, I think they can. Like, we are all in that situation. And like, and for me, it was like, it's a universal thing. So like, you could be sitting at home. You will never probably be involved in getting the Oscars up and going or Super Bowl or any of that stuff. But we all have big events in our life. So maybe it could be something like a family reunion, Christmas dinner, your wedding. And it is so incredibly crazy in that last week. And there are times in that last week when you're like, I just don't think this is going to come together. But you always come together. It's not like Christmas won't happen. Yeah. It's not like your wedding won't happen. So whatever it is in us, it gets it to happen. Fire Festival is the exception. Unless, well, <laughs> unless it's based on a scam. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, if you're going to Ponzi scheme it, then it yeah. won't happen. <laughs> but also, I love that you went into this pitch using the perfect anecdote. 
I mean, but it wasn't even a pitch. I want to say that I wish it was. It was a general meeting. We're just talking about yeah. that, and and the executives at Sony said like, "Oh, we love fashion designers. We love fashion shows." I'm like, "But that's the part that isn't interesting yeah. because we have access to all of that." So that fashion show you love so much, it is old news in 20 minutes. So no one's watching that six months later. But behind the scenes is what people will always want to watch because that's the thing that's evergreen. So like, yes, I said. Gaga will sing at the Super Bowl and you can everybody can go on YouTube and find that clip of her performing but how did she get there I want to see the rehearsals I want to see the rigs mm-hmm. I want to see all that that they have no access to and that's what that will come to Netflix for I think that's the takeaway though Joe because how many times like have we all been in meetings the executives say to you love fashion and the fashion shows are so great and you were the one who was like well no that's kind of boring it is let me tell you what is interesting here. I think a lot of people, because w- what we're trying to do is make everything we do on this show applicable to the non-glamorous yeah. life. People who are in engineering, people who are lawyers. And how many times have we all sat in a meeting with someone we think is important, who hold the keys to our success or hold the keys to giving us another opportunity, and you think they want something, we're all tempted to tell them what they want to hear. Mm-hmm. You gave them an anecdote that made them think a different way. That's a business skill. We're all trying to learn it. Oh, and and I love that because when the show came out and um, we dropped the show on Netflix December 21st, so right before the holidays, which we wanted, it was top trending all through the holidays. It spiked on Christmas Day. It's like one of their top 20 originals. Like it did really well. People found it and loved it. I mean, we have no marketing. We have no advertising. We have no host of the show. So it's not even like there's a talent to pimp out there. Yeah. A Queer Eye or Marie Kondo or any of that stuff. So people really had to genuinely just like love it because the topics and the subjects and the event itself were the star. And, and they did. And then that one executive from Sony, she emailed me or texted me like right after Christmas and said, thank you so much for making us think of something in a totally different way. And I feel like I'm glad because I don't even know my own weird twisted brain was I was even trying to think of it in a different way. I only thought of it this way. Do you know what I mean? And like when they were saying, we love fashion shows, I'm like, that's boring. We love fashion designers. I'm like, but they're not the people you want to connect with. It's the people behind the fashion designers that you want to see. And so I think in a way, it's getting everybody to sort of realign on that. I think also your point about uh, that red carpets used to be exciting because it looked like anything could happen, but now they're super scripted, right? And we know that everything that we see, all the social media, all the whatever is really, really produced, that you're sort of revitalizing what is truly non-scripted, which is absolutely a follow. Oh, and I think that's what people even loved about, like, say, Snapchat at the beginning. I mean, not anymore, but because it was just really raw and, like, unfiltered and, like, unedited. It was like, let me just do something and then put it up and it'll disappear. Because, you know, like we live in a life of Instagram and Instagram is not real because we take 99 pictures, pick the one we love, filter it to death and then put it up. That's not real life, (laughs) you know? But, and I think behind the scenes is real life because like we don't get to redo that. Mm -hmm. We don't get to redo the fourth day before Cassini. Once the fourth day is over, it's over. Well, you can't because, like, the rocket is heading there. Yeah. Whether you want it to. That's what I mean. So in a way, it's like here we are. All we can do is document it. So you talked actually about something so interesting. You said, and it's not even like we have a host that you can kind of promote and whatnot. But, of course, you do so much work that is on camera and some that's off camera as well. So how do you choose with this project with seven days out but in general as well about things where you're like yeah no this is something that I think needs like my voice visually or literally or no this is something I want to work on 
without sort of having a affronting. Oh, I mean, I, I don't, I, I think it's, it's always just seems so obvious to me. Like this from the very beginning was like, I love documentaries and I love documentary storytelling. And there was no reason for me to be wedged into this, you know, like, and I feel like this is authentic in its own story. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't sit around and be like, oh, I should be on it. I shouldn't be on it. I should be on it. I shouldn't be on it. I just feel like, yeah, if it works, but most times it's like, what is it going to be? How do we make the best show? How do we make the best show? Regardless of who's in it or not in it, how do we make the best show? And what will be the best show? What will people want to watch? What will people want to read? What will people want to see? I mean, it's how I approach all of my stuff, whether I built a website or magazine publishing. It's like, how do you just do the best that you can do? I mean, because I think it's sometimes too easy, especially now. Everybody is an influencer, but like everybody wants to wedge themselves into everything. And sometimes it's like, maybe it's better without that. But it's kind of hard to explain to people because especially this sort of millennial generation, Gen Z, it's like kind of they just think that they are they are the story all the time. But you know that's kind of a unique perspective, right? That it, you were talking about um, bosses who or executives who you it, the instinct is to tell them what they, what they want yeah. to hear. And similarly, I think for somebody like you who's had so much success on camera, there are a lot of people who would just be like, well, that's what I do. I'm going to do more of that. Uh, do you think that there's – do you think you're unusual that that's not a priority know. for you always? Um, I don't know. Maybe it's like a lack of hierarchy or a lack of like – like, like even this aside, like whenever I uh, started a job at a magazine, and magazines were so much about hierarchy. I mean, it was Devil Wears Prada, especially pre-internet and all that stuff. I remember when I first walked into Elle magazine, it was a huge, huge behemoth of a, of a place. And I was taking over all of these different departments. We were remaking things, and we we're having a, the first editorial meeting. And I walked in, and like, you know, all the editors were there. And I was like, oh, wait, where are all the assistants? They were like, oh, they don't come to this meeting. I'm like, oh, I don't work like that. Let's just have everybody come. And I was like, I don't care who you are, who you are, what your title is, what your title is. Everybody's going to contribute an idea. And like literally, the assistants were terrified. They had no idea why they were being asked in to come to the meeting. They were so wide-eyed. It really took them a minute. And I'd be like, well, tell me what you think. Like, what, what did you see? And I think they finally understood that when everybody had a democratic voice in a place that no one had any level of democracy before – I think it really sort of, I, I think it really sort of set them free. And I see them all now, and they have all excelled into incredible, incredible positions. And it was just about having a voice. Because I remember being an assistant, I remember thinking, I have ideas, but I'm not allowed to open my mouth because I'm not of a certain level yet. And I think that's, and you know, that's frustrating. Yeah. Like, for somebody who just wants to get stuff done, I'm like, that's so frustrating. I mean, I would rather hear an idea that sucks than to have missed on one that's great. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There is something, though, you know, as Duana was mentioning, about choosing what to front, what not to front. And then also you at the beginning of this conversation talking about your need to always be busy. So there, how do you choose what to say yes to and what to say no to? 
And specifically in those yeses and nos, which ones you are in front of the camera for and which ones you're behind the camera for. I think I feel like if I can actually add something to to what the project is and like enhance it, then I'd be like, oh, I think that's really fun to do. Or if I just think it's fun, I'll be like, oh, I'm going to do it. That's like, <laughs> that's fun. <laughs> um, or I feel like I can make a difference. Or it can exercise some sort of creative gene in my head. So I think if it sort of ticks off one of those boxes, there's not real right or wrong formula. I don't know. I think it's just an instinctual thing. I mean, you know, it's like if someone says, do you want to do this? And you're like, actually, yes. Or actually, no. And then, I don't know. And sometimes I've learned definitely over the years to say yes to things that I want to say no to first that are terrifying. Mm. And then I'm like, well, I should say yes. And like, I'm coming back to Canada Reads. It's so left field for a fashion guy and then I was like oh but you know what though I just gotta do this it's like I feel like it's like a once in a lifetime thing to sit there and really have an intellectual debate about something that has nothing to do with my field of profession do you know what I mean this is where I think that's really interesting because there's a phrase right now and that phrase is on brand and a lot of people in determining the course of their career ask themselves when new opportunities come around is this on brand for me so to list off the, the things that you're multitasking right now, you've got Seven Days Out, you've got Canada Reads. It's a book debate. For those of you uh, not in Canada, it's a book debate. Joe's defending one book against four other people. Um, then you have, you know, you're judging on, on shows about fashion designers. You're a commentator on, you know, American television. So are all of these things in your mind on brand? And sometimes if something is on brand for you, does it maybe not work out anyway? Yeah, I I wish I could be more intentional in being on brand because mm-hmm. okay. I generally say yes to a lot of things I just get excited about or I'm terrified of. And okay. I want to like learn a little bit from and move on with my life. And I feel like, and I have known this now, I mean, I didn't feel it. I just did it. And then I've had a lot of people respond to me over the years to be like, you've had such an interesting career. Like, oh, you did this. And how did you know to go there? And how did you know to try this? I'm like, I didn't. I wish I could be so intentional. Be like, well, I'm going to do this now. So get me this or that. I just say yes to things. Like even when I was at L and I was leaving L because I got an opportunity to go build a website at Yahoo. I literally had the entire fashion industry scratching their heads being like, you're quitting such a prestigious job at L to go do a website. Yeah. And now magazines are going up in flames and print publishing is really kind of done in the States. And people are being like, how do I get digital opportunities? And they're like, Joe, how did you know? And how did you do this thing on Netflix? And how did you know to do that next? And I'm not really patting myself on the back, but just really, I was doing the things that I love. Like I'm doing all that stuff, but like, I'm also working on like developing a scripted project right now, which is also very left field for me, but, um, but incredibly interesting and fun. And it wasn't sort of a thing where I woke up and said, Hmm, now I'm going to really conquer that world now. And I should do that because I can expand my brand. Like I wish I could be more that because then maybe, I don't know, maybe I just get bored and have ADD and I just need to do a different thing all the time. That's like, I think, uh, yeah, it's probably a byproduct of multitasking. (laughs) I also think it might also be um, a byproduct of background. Like we, Duane and I both were raised by immigrants and you just say yes to 
everything at the beginning. Because you you, don't know if you'll ever be asked again. Absolutely. And because, yeah, there's there's not room for ego about it or for, yeah, for for sort of a long time to hem and haw. As you often say, you got to walk through the door immediately uh, because it could close. Absolutely. Oh, and, you know, yes, and we are immigrants. And, like, we, I was always raised with the, with the feeling to say, you know what? You have to work harder than everybody else that's here. You have to be more than everybody else is here because then you will be of the same level. So, like, I was always ingrained in my head that I will only be on equal playing field with the people that are here if I actually did more, if I worked a little bit harder, if I pushed myself even more. So... I don't know. So maybe in pushing myself 150%, I thought I was just like sort of being everybody else, but maybe it's sort of eclipsing that. I have no idea. I don't know. Sometimes I'm like, I don't think I'm doing enough. There are days when I wake up and I'm like, I feel really lazy. I'm not <laughs> I, kidding. I, 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 I'm laughing not because I don't believe you. I believe you very much, but because we've talked about how the only people who accuse themselves of being lazy are the people who work really, really hard. Like, have you ever met an actual lazy person call themselves lazy? They no, don't. they're usually really busy. Yeah. Oh, I'm so stressed. <laughs> no, I've like I have so much going on. Yeah. In my head I'm like, with what? <laughs> <laughs> Not slighting you lazy people. <laughs> well, it was like that thing that I I texted you one day and it blew your mind and I think you you paused and I think you were thinking about it for a while is we had an expert come on our show about burnout. She I think she's like a career coach and she was like, "You know what I've realized about burnout?" The people who get burned out are the ones who love their jobs. The The branding around burnout is you're pushed too hard mm-hmm. and you're just so stressed and um, you're hating every minute of it. Yeah, the image of wage slaves or something. That's right. And she was like, no, no, no. The people I meet who get burned out are the ones who actually are loving what they do. Yeah, it makes perfect sense, um, except that I guess the the – Cure for burnout, if you are burned out, for, for us, anyway, around this table, seems to be do more other work. Like, do something else. That's maybe where the multitasking is born, that you're like, okay, well, then I'm going to go over here, as opposed to, yeah, lie down. And, like burnout, it's, and burnout is, like, so subjective to different people anyways, because yes. people be like, I'm so tired, I've taken a month off. They're like, are you going to take vacation? I'm like, if I take a weekend off, I'm totally fine. Like, I'll be back raring to go on Monday. And they're like, that's it? I'm like, I'm good. I'm yeah. good. And like that's just different for different people. And it's not like me trying to be a martyr. I'm just, you know, being being who I am. Like I've gone to therapy and I sit there and be like, I love work. I don't want to be apologetic about it. And they're like, Joe, you thrive on chaos. You thrive <laughs> on like you thrive on like chaos. No, he really and it's like, and it's okay. And I was like, it's damn okay. Yeah. And I feel like I'm I'm not. You know, and even like when I first got together with my husband and he was like, you are such a workaholic and this and that. And I think he's come to even realize that like it makes me happy and it's just who I am. So like other people love to go to the gym and I do too, but that's my work. Do you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? And I think it's, I think we all have to stop being apologetic about being like, I like to work. And I don't think that is a bad thing to say. Is it hard to find other people who feel the same way? Like, I think that people who love work kind of seek each other out and find each other. That's how you and I, like, cemented over what was supposed to be, like, one phone call many years ago. Um, Do you find that you gravitate to those people a lot? Uh, Definitely. Definitely. I mean, I think – and then – and, and they're like, there's an intensity about them that I really love too. 
Um, and I think that's why I love you guys because I just love. I feel like you're just like in it, and like, and like my husband is very laid back, and even he'll be like, "Oh my god, so and so is just exactly like you." I'm like, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Do you find that this then predisposes you to be better handling failure? I am better at handling failure now mm-hmm. than definitely early on. Um, yeah, but I, you know, like I'm Asian, I'm competitive by nature. So by <laughs> failure is like, oh, fuck, now I'm embarrassed. And, I'm like, <laughs> and then like you got to figure yeah. it out again. I don't know. I Listen, I gave a commencement speech at FIT two years ago. Um, and then it was like, and then the Washington Post called it as like one of the eight best commencement speeches that year with like Barack Obama and Sheryl Sandberg and Steven Spielberg and Lindman. I was like, oh my God. But like, it was really like, it was like not your typical speech. It wasn't like, oh, today's the beginning of the rest of your life, blah, blah, blah. I was just like, I'm a failure. I'm going to tell you why. And like, I, this is all the times I ugly cried because I didn't get that job or like this and that. And then it was just like in retrospect, looking at all of those failures, my successes that I am so proud of couldn't have happened without those failures. Mm-hmm. So like, I just have to trust that now when there's a failure, something even bigger and better um, will take its place. I ask this because all three of us are in high fail rate professions. Duane, you're a screenwriter. Yeah. How many fucking scripts have you written or specs ha- don't go through? Right. And I've talked a lot about that. It's designed that way, that the business of scripted programming is designed that so many things don't go through. Absolutely. Yeah. It happens to everybody, including the people you love. I've done, like, before the social, I did a pilot for another talk show. It didn't get picked up. So I think for you, over the course of, like, what you've done, there are things that are a smash hit. For every seven days out, there's another thing that doesn't go. A a handful of things. So, like, for every winner, there's a dozen things that that fall apart. Um, And you just – and, yes, I think it's the nature of the business. So you sort of get used to that. Um, But I think just failure overall – I think you have to have it. And I kind of, I kind of more embrace it as I get older. And some things I'm literally like, oh, that fucking sucks. But like, <laughs> you know, and, and if it's failure for something that I can learn from, great. But if it's like a failure from something where I'm caught in the politics of somebody else's bullshit, mm-hmm. then I'm like, that is really just like no bueno. But otherwise, it's like, I don't know. It's all part and parcel of life, I think. Sounds so cliche, but yeah. No, but it also keeps supporting your point about multitasking, that the thing that you do after you, of course, ugly cry and bitch about it to your friends and whatnot is you're on to the next, which is great because you have the next because you've been doing the multitasking all the time. Oh, someone said to me a long time ago, just make sure you have like six to eight fires lit because only one will catch. It's so, so (laughs) true, but it's like something that you need reinforced over and over again. When you're like, oh, do I have time to take on this other thing? It's like, that can be the thing. So like, as much as the ones that you fall in love with don't always go, it's always, it's often too that the one that you never expected is the thing you're like, oh, this is my next six months now. Exactly. How many things have we all done where like, this is the winner. This is our Oprah moment. And then you're like, well, that fizzled. (laughs) (laughs) So how do you bounce back from that, aside from having multiple fires? How do you, like, bounce back from the sting of... Failure? Of of something not, like, living up to your expectations? And let's put it out there. Like, we've read your resume. We, like, you're, we know you're a huge success. So let's put it out there. Like, for example, when the fab life didn't mm-hmm. work out, how do you, how do you overcome that? 
Um, you sit in the shitty feeling for a minute instead of pretending it doesn't exist, which mm. I did for so many years of my life. I'm like, I'm just going to feel really crummy about that. And I actually really, and and that was a really hard time for me because I actually love that talk show yeah. for many reasons because it was the first time in my life I had a real routine. I have never had a routine in my entire adult life. Yeah. And that was the first time I knew that every day I had to go to the studio, every day we were filming at these hours. A talk every show day is rigid. We it's yeah. rigid. It's timed out. It's specifically what it is. I'm going to go through my notes with the producers in this time. We're going to get our hair and makeup done. We're going to go down there. We're going to film the show. We're going to go home. I love the rigidness of that routine. Like I felt like, oh, I've got a nine to five job that I never, ever had. And I love the people. And it was like a family. Like whenever you work on a set, you know, those people are like your family. Uh, you dude, you hate. got to spend every day with Chrissy Teigen. Like <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Then she got pregnant and then she went opportunity. But yes, yeah. but I, I love. But like, you know, so when it was over, it was like saying goodbye to your family forever and like who knows what will happen. Yeah. Um, so, but you just, I just kind of have to like revel in that like sadness for a while. Mm-hmm. And then, and then I would wake up and be like, okay, that's it. Enough. Now what? And let's, what's next? And I think that's what works for me. And I'm not saying I don't know what works for everybody. Like some things work differently for other people where they just don't give a damn and they move on or they ever can't get over it. However it is that works for you. For me, it's like, you know, I think I used to just like pretend it didn't bother me and then move on. And now I'm just like, I'm just going to be upset about this for a little bit. And then I'm just going to like now move on. I think too, one thing that we've talked about is that Maybe people who are in industries like these get better at that, partly because you are always saying goodbye. Whether something doesn't work out or if it works out really well, but everything comes to an end, then you have that post-show depression. Yes. Where you're like – I get that anyways. It's like the end of summer camp. Like yeah. You know when you like spend mm-hmm. so much time with someone at summer camp and you're like, wait, I don't see you again until next summer, but I don't know if I'm coming back. Like It's like all of that anxiety of yeah. like – you know, then like, I'm like, oh, I'm so sad. And then like a week later, you're like, she's what's the, her name? She's the worst for that. Like, it, <laughs> I'm the worst. You're like, it really kills you. It like, does. But then, it, but, it, yeah. but then a week later, you're like, wait, what was, what was their name Who? again? Yes, exactly. Yes. They're my people. They're my family. And you, you're texting 25 times a day. And then you're like, yeah, what? Hi. Um, wait, do, you, do you guys remember her name? Yeah. But I think that's it. You get really good at saying goodbye, both to things yeah. that you loved or that didn't get to where you wanted and that kind of thing. Yeah. So then knowing that and knowing that it's always ongoing, what's the thing? What's the white whale? What's the thing that you still have really want to do that you haven't quite gotten to or that you really are like, this is in my eyeline? I would love to make a documentary. Like truly like tell a real gritty story about something. Like and a feature length doc or you like a... Like a true Sundance doc. Yeah. yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like we're like it really that had some impact into the way that we live our life now, whatever that topic may be, you know, and there's things that float in my head, but I feel like it's hard. And every time I've read about any great true documentary filmmakers, they go into a topic having something in mind and all of a sudden become something else. And like true great docs come out of some storyline completely detouring and spiraling away. And I was like, that sort of, you know, I would love to be, and maybe that's one thing I'll do, you know, on my bucket list at some point. What I got out of that, what was so clear to me the whole way through is that all of Josie's success is based on being authentic, being who you are, even if the codes and the rules of your industry say anything but that you get further by being yourself. And you know, about staying true to yourself, if staying true to yourself is not seeking 
like the lead role in a project, but allowing other people to take the lead and to showcase themselves and be highlighted. That's like, that's really good show your work too. And I do think that Joe does that. He strategically steps in front of the camera when he needs to. And good leaders also like stay way behind the line um, when, when they want to too and they, when they think it's the best move. Send us your thoughts. Hit us up on Instagram. Please, please leave us reviews on iTunes. We want to know what you thought of this very special episode. And yes, we'll have more from Josie. This is a two-parter very, very soon. There will be more stories. We hope you love it as much as we do. Till next time, work hard, show your work. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365-day returns.